0: All right, so you ready for another yelling one? I'm afraid this one gets me really annoyed for reasons that I hope will become clear, but we're going to take on Baruch Spinoza. Bento Baruch Benedictus, all these names mean blessed, and he was born in 1632 in Amsterdam. Now, there's a whole history going all the way back to Portugal and Spain about Jews in conflict with Christianity, Christianity bearing down hard on the Jews, forced conversions, a whole thing. Long story short the Jewish community that Spinoza came from ended up in Amsterdam because it was one of the most religiously tolerant places in Europe. Now, Spinoza was very gifted intellectually. This was very clear to everyone when he was growing up, especially to the rabbis. And probably he was going to be groomed to be a successful and prominent rabbi, but no luck. He had to jump out of school at the age of 17 to help run his family's import-export business. Now, at the age of 24, we don't know exactly why, but man, something unbelievable happened. So there's a writ of harem, or a ban, or an excommunication, and Spinoza was issued the very harshest one, pretty much, on record, and this was never rescinded. Now, they didn't say in detail what Spinoza had done that made him so appallingly abhorrent to the obviously pretty orthodox Jewish community. They referred to his monstrous deeds and abominable heresies, and it was brutal. I mean, nobody was allowed to have any contact with him, verbal, written. You weren't allowed to refer the guy even refer to the guy even his own family was barred from having any contact with him. And of course, this meant he couldn't engage in uh, commerce. He he had no community and so on. So he ended up bugging out, as, as you can imagine. So it's not too hard to imagine what probably happened with Spinoza and his uh, community, because suppose Spinoza, as a pantheist materialist, a pantheist is somebody who believes that God is everything and everything is God, so he denied the immortality of the soul, He rejected as anthropomorphic the idea of a God outside the universe that you could appeal to, that you could pray to, that you could ask favors of, and who could provide you any kind of benefits. Essentially, praying to God for a miracle was the equivalent of praying to a mountain to not erupt, or praying for a cloud to not rain. And so this was obviously pretty appalling to the orthodox Jewish community that he was, I guess for 24 years, a part of. So this was pretty wild. Now, he only published one work in his lifetime. He died fairly young, and you'll hear this analogy because it's very, very common. Spinoza is extraordinarily well liked by a lot of philosophers. Uh, Carl Sagan liked him, uh, Albert Einstein Liked him, uh, said, if there is a God, it's Spinoza's God that I believe in. Bertrand Russell said that he was the most likable and nice of the modern philosophers and so on. Well, of course, none of those are arguments. (laughs) We'll get into his arguments as a whole. Okay, so his most famous work is called Ethics, and it's pretty tough to get through. It's really dense. And he uses... Would, geometry was really in vogue, as it occasionally seems to, or more than occasionally seems to in the realm of philosophy. Geometry was really in vogue, so he used geometrical types of proofs for his arguments. So it's really dense, it's really hard to get through, and his terms shift and change. Technically, he would be known as a, an epistemological weasel bag. Uh, I know that's a, a harsh thing to say, but hopefully I'll make the case <laughs> as we go forward. So his ethical vision is the metaphysics in which God and nature are the same thing, yet not the same thing. This is the kind of contradiction that drives me nuts when it comes to philosophy as a whole. So let's get into this as a whole. So even for people like Descartes and, of course, for Christians and for Jews and for Muslims and just about everybody with a religious bone in their body, the idea is that there's a God who existed prior to and external to the universe— or certainly prior to, who then decided to create the universe, and it still remains prior to, will outlast the universe, exists outside the universe. So God is the potter, and his will is the clay, and the vase is the universe, and we would not say that the potter and the vase are the same thing. The poet writes a poem, and certainly the poem is a reflection of the poet, but the poem and the poet are not the same thing. Obviously, they can be physically separated. The poem is not alive. The poet is. The poetry exists, and the poem exists after the death of the poet. The poet no longer exists, but the poem does. So there's lots of ways we know in which these things are different. So this was a traditional view. God exists outside the universe. God intervenes in the universe, right? I mean, this is But you have to sort of understand it. If God doesn't intervene in the universe, then a prayerful religion and moral commandments don't make any sense. Right? I can't say to my two kids, I'm not going to interfere in your game and then give them the rules of the game. Right? Because I'm not going to interfere in your play at all. You're going to play completely on your own. I'm not going to interfere with your play at all. And then I say, oh, you have to play Monopoly and here are the rules. Or you have to play a game that I made up and here are the rules. The moment that I say, here's the game you have to play and here are the rules, I'm interfering in my children's play. So even having rules, giving commandments, tablets, Moses, Jesus, all of this is an intervention in creation because it didn't come spontaneously and organically from within creation according to the rules of the game called physics and and all of that. So, miracles don't spontaneously exist within creation, and therefore miracles are an intervention from God outside of creation. And not to put too cynical a marketplace on it, but that's kind of what religion is offering you. And whether you're an atheist or religious, please understand, for Spinoza to come along and say, asking God for a favor is like asking a fruit tree to produce an ocelot. It's ridiculous. And the idea that there's a consciousness outside of the universe that listens to you and will intervene into the rules that consciousness created the universe in order to follow is crazy. It's mad. Now, you understand this is a bridge between medievalism and the modern world, right? Because he's he's saying that there's nothing but matter and energy But he's not an atheist. In fact, he was quite upset when people would call him an atheist, even though that's kind of the logical consequence of his argument. But if God doesn't give you rules on how to live, if God doesn't listen to prayers, if God doesn't provide any benefits or punishment, there's no heaven, there's no hell, you don't live after death, then what are the priests offering you? What can they offer you? Now, Spinoza did say, look, th- th- there's good, good morals in the Bible, but they're written by men, and they're put into an analogous way or a metaphorical way to uh, appeal to the common man, and it's nice if they believe that there's a God in some ways, because it may make them more likely to follow those rules, but, you know, to the, to the wise, to the knowledgeable, we understand that this is not the case, right? So, God ain't listening, God ain't intervening, God doesn't give rules, God and the universe are the same thing, and you would no more pray to God than you would pray to a rock. Now, if a rock is bouncing down a hill towards you, you run out of the way. You don't sit there and clasp your your hands in prayer and kneel and pray for the God of the rock to spare you, right? This wouldn't make, uh, make any sense at all. Okay, so you have to understand the rational universe and that there are no exceptions to the rationality of the universe he tried to solve what's called the mind-body dichotomy, which is how can the physicality of the brain produce the mind? How can the physicality of the brain produce the mind? Now, for me, not that complicated. The mind is an effect of the brain in the same way that gravity is an effect of matter. In the same way that life is an effect of you know, functioning living cellular organisms working in concert. So, the the traditional answer, of course, is that the mind is the soul. It's an immaterial essence of thinking and existing and having consciousness as a rational being, and it exists outside of nature. And, of course, you cut open someone's mind, you don't see a person. You don't see thoughts, memories, or anything like that. So... Descartes had this dichotomy, that there's the mind, which is immaterial, and then there is the brain, which is material. Now, the reason I say that the mind is an effect of the brain is that we don't see mind in the absence of the brain, right? If we say gravity is an effect of matter, then one way we would test that is we would look to see, is there gravity in the absence of matter? Well, no, there's no gravity in the absence of matter. Now, uh, the, the question of cause is really, really interesting. So, substance or, or the essence of something is something which doesn't have a prior cause. And I used to play this game with myself when I was a kid. What I would do is I would, I would say, oh, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of a red steam engine. Okay, why am I thinking of red steam engine? Oh, before... I was thinking about two parallel lines going into infinity and that made me think of a train track and then I thought of a tomato and then I thought of a train and I thought of a train getting hit by a lot of tomatoes. That seemed kind of funny. I thought of ketchup train. Oh, that's how I got to a red train. So when you go back in your thoughts, you try, you can sort of go back in causality to to infinity, right? So in terms of cause and effect, right? So is a leaf... In essence, is it a self-contained substance that relies on nothing else? Well, no, of course, it relies on the tree. Well, what does the tree rely on? Well, nutrients in the soil, it relies on water, it relies on sunshine, okay? So nutrients in the soil, are they in essence? Well, nutrients in the soil are, are there because they were deposited by wind and rain and, and so on. And oh, is it's rain, uh, no, rain has to be evaporated from the oceans or the lakes and go up into the clouds and come back down. And, and so going all the way back, The dominoes, right? What is the first person to flick the domino? And, of course, in general, the first person to flick the domino is considered to be God because the domino can't flick itself. It's got no arms, right? Someone's got to flick the domino and then the domino begins to fall out of there. So his book Ethics, the geometric-styled work, is really not about ethics so much as he's got this metaphysics where God and nature are simultaneous. So God didn't create the universe, he doesn't rule it benevolently through interference and rewards and punishments and suggestions and so on. He doesn't provide a conscience. And nature, what is there, what we would think of as matter and energy, is infinite and it's necessary. Right? It wasn't necessary for God to create the universe, but if the universe is eternal and infinite, then it is necessary because it is eternal and infinite. It doesn't have a start. And it's fully deterministic. Fully deterministic. See, here's the problem, right? We've talked about this before. How do you escape the dominoes of prior causes? Why am I saying what I'm saying at the moment? Why? Well, I was in a bookstore with my daughter. We were looking for a book she wanted. And I happened to pick up a book. And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to do a history of philosophers? I've been trained in it. I've studied it for many years would be interesting to share my thoughts. And so I did, and people like it, and uh, I'm glad that you are enjoying it. I have ambivalence towards it, but I think in the long run, it's a good thing. So I can go all the way back, and okay, well, why did I do that? Well, uh, I studied it in in university. Well, why did I study it in university? Well, uh, because I enjoyed it in high school. Why did I enjoy it in high school? Because I was really drawn to Objectivism and Aristotelianism Well why was I drawn to objectivism and Aristotelianism Because I have a survival instinct And my survival instinct Was being dragged Against my will into the infinite fiery pit Of anti-rationalism, subjectivism And mysticism By the Pied Piper of my mother's madness And the crumbling Sanity of A dissolving culture So if someone is trying to, To push you into a fiery pit You will turn and fight like hell and you will get as far away from that fiery pit, from the edge of that fiery pit as you possibly can. Okay, so why was my mother inflicting anti-rationality upon me? Oh, well, you see, because she was born with, with two curses. One is the war that she was in, and I'm sure raped, assaulted, God knows what, as a child by the Russian soldiers that she complained about. And also physical beauty, which meant that she had a power with trauma and power plus trauma is is bad for most people and so okay but then you go well why did the war start <laughs> right well because blah 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 so you can kind of go on and on back here now if you're going to hold look at a whole series of dominoes how do you jump the domino how do you get out of the domino right so you've probably seen these dominoes if you have kids you've seen these little domino videos right they have a domino in a line and then the domino, domino lines go to the left and to the right. And if you do it well, the domino falls and starts both the left and the right ones going. If you do it badly, it only falls to the left or it only falls to the right. How do you get out of the dominoes? How do you have free will? How do you have free will? If you have a ghost in the machine, you get free will, but you also get mysticism. In other words, you explain free will, or you rather use magic to pretend to explain free will. So you can jump the dominoes, you get moral responsibility, a conscience, a choice, and free will but you have to put a ghost into the machine. If you take the ghost out of the machine, which is what Spinoza did, why are you not just the mechanical operations of the universe, dominoes falling, there's no escape? So I have my own answer, but this is really about Spinoza, so you can look up my three-part series on free will for all of that. So he says, well, you got to live by reason. you got to live by reason. We are happiest... Right? He says, you know, we want to flourish, we want to, we want to be happy. And we are happy when we use reason to understand the actual universe. And since the actual universe, actual universe is objective and rational, we use our reason to understand the universe, and we don't flee into ghosts and mysticism and magic and miracles. We use our reason to understand the universe. And that's the best we can do. But let me just sort of finish up how his life went before we delve into his ideas. So he moved around a lot. He wrote a book called Theological Political Treaties, which made a case for—I mean, not he was not a complete separation of church and state kind of guy, but he did say that free speech and the free exercise of conscience and the free exercise of publication was essential. And people got, of course, incredibly, insanely angry at that, and he was threatened— and then he witnessed a political revolution wherein somebody he really admired for his liberal policies, uh, the grand pensionary of Holland, Yandi Witt, and his brother Cornelius, uh, was murdered by an angry mob of Orangists and Calvinists, or Orangist Calvinists. And so as the Orangist Calvinist faction of uh, Christianity became ascendant in his political environment, he felt his own life to be pretty much at risk, and and I think uh, rightly so. So then in 1670, he fled to The Hague, and he died in his rented room in The Hague in 1677, uh, without a will. He had no kids. But the manuscripts of his unpublished works, uh, the Hebrew grammar, the political treaties, and his correspondence, the treatise on the emendation of the intellect, his book The Ethics, were all found in his desk. They were... A shift to Amsterdam for publication, and they appeared in print. So, 1677, he died. His books are found. His works are found. Uh, they're published, and then the very next year, they're banned throughout Holland. Now, what he di- I think he died at 48. So, what he died of were lung problems. And the traditional, very boring, very basic pitch analogy is: Well, you see. He made his living as a lens grinder for people's spectacles. And therefore, he sacrificed himself and his health because he inhaled all of this glass dust. So he sacrificed himself, his health, and his longevity in order to help mankind see better. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, so I don't mean to sound cold to the guy, but, um, <laughs> but I am. And again, I'll, I'll make the case. All right. Spinoza's god... Is not, is not just the cause of all things, because that would be shared by most religious perspectives, but all things follow causally and necessarily from God's divine nature. So this is from Spinoza, from God's infinite power or nature, quote, all things have necessarily flowed or always followed by the same necessity and in the same way as from the nature of a triangle it follows from eternity and to eternity, that its three angles are equal to two right angles. Right, so always adds up to uh, one hundred and eighty degrees. Right, so the existence of the world is thus necessary by mathematics. Again, I just saying, well, three angles of a triangle are always equal to two right angles. I don't see how <laughs> that means that everything in the world is mathematically necessary. So he said. God could not exist if the world did not exist. God does not exist outside of the universe. God and the universe are one, and because God is perfect and infinite, the universe is perfect and infinite, because the existence of God is perfection, and the existence of God is the existence of the universe, the universe is perfection, and and so on, right? So there's no other universe, there's no other worlds, there's no heaven, uh, there's no hell. Everything that is is a perfect manifestation of the perfect and eternal nature of God. So he says, in nature there is nothing contingent, but all things have been determined from the necessity of the divine nature to exist and produce an effect in a certain way. Things could have been produced by God in no other way, and in no other way than they have been produced. Again, there are some supposed proofs, but most of this stuff is just assertions. So there's a phrase that he uses in Latin, but not in the original Dutch edition of his book, The Ethics. Deus Sive Natura, God or nature. Quote, the eternal, the, sorry, that eternal and infinite being we call God or nature acts from the same necessity from which he exists. That eternal and infinite being we call God or nature acts from the same necessity from which he exists. Well, Does that mean he's making nature divine, or is he making God nature? (laughs) Well, of course, uh, split the baby. Spinoza says, no, 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 there's two sides of nature. There's the active and productive side of the universe, right? God and all of his associated attributes from which all else follows. This is natura, naturans, or roughly translated, naturing nature. And this is the same as God. The other aspect of the universe is that which is produced and sustained by the active aspect, which he refers to as natura naturata, or natured nature, cause and effect. Now, they didn't have, or Spinoza didn't have, for obvious reasons, a concept of atoms. Now, lacking a concept of atoms... Well, it's kind of hard to get to the essence of matter, right? Now, I know atoms can be subdivided and so on, right? But atoms matter down at the atomic level can neither be created nor destroyed. Right? I mean, the, 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 whatever the, the most essential electrons, protons, neutrons, the most essential aspects of nature, right, matter cannot be destroyed or created, it can be transferred to energy and back again, but that's it. So when you're talking about the uncaused causer of things, it's it's atoms, and the associated physical properties and and rules and laws of of nature, of of matter. So he drills down and says, okay, what's the cause of everything? It has to be something that is not caused itself, because it can't be an infinite regression of causation. Now the atoms just are, And then there's a bunch of effects that happen when they aggregate in H2O, you get water and so on. O2, you get oxygen. CO2, you get carbon dioxide. So because he didn't know atoms, he had to put some sort of ghost that he denied the existence of weaving its way through matter. So he says, look, there's matter, and then there's all the effects of matter. So he says, by natura naturata, right? By natured nature... He says, I understand whatever follows from the necessity of God's nature or from any of God's attributes, i.e. all the modes of God's attributes insofar as they are considered as things that are in God and can neither be nor be conceived without God. So there is a nature to God which is the basic essence of God the matter and energy of the universe. And then there are all of these effects as this stuff combines. You, you put heat and wood together, you get fire, and then you get ash, and then you get smoke, and right? so. Now, of course, if you were to take out God and replace it with atoms, you would say, by nature, nature, I understand, whatever follows from the necessity of the nature of atoms or from any of the attributes of the nature of atoms, all the modes of the attributes of atoms, insofar as they're considered as things that are actually atoms and can't be or be conceived of without atoms. Well, that would be, I think, closer to modern understanding or, I think, accurate understanding of of physics. So the idea that we look at blind, mechanistic nature and we ascribe all of these purposes and 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 goals and morals and and preferences and punishments and rewards it's complete fiction and it's the projection of human personalities onto blind and inchoate nature right so i mean t- take as a silly example so my daughter loves her ducks right so we get these ducks when they're very little a day or two old and they sit in our hands they eat from our hands, they follow us around, they'll sit on our laps, they'll try and burrow into our armpits, they'll fall asleep, and they cuddle, right? And, of course, like all children and many adults, you think, oh, these ducks love me. They, they're so affectionate. They care about me. They like me. They, no, they don't. They just bond with whatever moves around them when they open their eyes. I, I've seen ducks follow a balloon, because the balloon happened to be... They did experiments. They put balloon, and then they have the balloon drift around, the ducks follow the balloon. You project all these human characteristics. We have affection for people we like. Now, you can mistreat a duck, and you will have the duck avoid you, and so on. I get all of that. But the bonding mechanism is automatic. It's not in the same way that one adult may, may love another adult because of virtues and, and kindness and courage and all these things, right? Uh, people do this with dogs, too, right? I mean, dogs are pack animals, they bond, and therefore they have, dogs are loyal. It's like, well, no, they're just, they're programmed that way. And again, the better you treat a dog, the more loyal the dog will be, but it's not because the dog is evaluating your moral character, right? Hitler was famously kind to animals, and the animals, I'm sure, responded positively to Hitler, but not because they were able to evaluate his moral character, because he was a, you know, supremely evil dude, right? So he says About anthropomorphizing nature. Spinoza writes All the prejudice I here undertake to expose depend on this one that men commonly suppose that all natural things act, as men do, on account of an end. Indeed, they maintain as certain that God Himself directs all things to some certain end, for they say that God has made all things for man and that man and man that He might worship God. And this is to some degree there. There was an idea which was eventually Pangloss was was uh, a character in Voltaire's book Candide, who said, "This is the best of all uh, possible worlds." Notice that the fruit hangs just so we might be able to find it. Notice that the ocean is full of fish that are nutritious and healthy for us uh, to eat. Notice that the sun warms and and causes the plants. Uh, to flourish. Notice that certain animals are amenable to domestication and they're incredibly useful to human beings. Notice how everything has been blah, 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 right? You get all of that. Notice that the temperature is not so hot that men melt, nor so cold that they turn into blocks of ice, and so on, right? So, uh, this is um, a way, and, and therefore, if if the world seems designed for the happiness and productivity of human beings, is it not truly wonderful and glorious in a way of understanding that this world was created and designed for us, right? So imagine that you are uh, an intelligent ape in a zoo enclosure, right? You say, oh, look, there's bars to keep the predators out, Uh, there's food that's given to us on a regular basis, we have things to play with, we have enough water to drink. You couldn't design an enclosure more amenable to the health and flourishing of monkeys than this monkey enclosure. So the the monkey, who would be smart, would say, well, yes, this is not accidental. This is all designed for my comfort. And therefore, there's somebody out there who created this enclosure and makes sure that I stay healthy. And in the same way, people say, well, gosh, all of these, uh, all of these, yeah, the gravity of the earth is wonderfully great so that the air does not escape and we stay to the ground, but it's not so heavy that we crushed and can't move. And Right, so now, of course, the fact that you know, maybe one in a thousand planets is probably conducive to our kind of life, so 9,909 planets may not have any life on them at all. Like they found a new planet that has water on it, but it's a third bigger. I don't know what effect that would have on life. You know, I know that if human beings were over 10 feet tall, every time they walked, they'd break their thigh bone. You couldn't design it any other way, or their thigh bone would too, be too heavy to walk. So, the fact that we happen to have evolved here makes, us, makes it seem like everything's designed for us, but it wasn't. It's just that if it had been different, we wouldn't have evolved here. I mean, a blindfolded archer who, shoots, who spun around three times and shoots over a roof and hits a bullseye on the other side is not a great archer. <laughs> right? It's just luck. So yeah, God, God is not some... Human beings have goals and purposes and, and reward virtue and punish vice and, and have moral judgments. And, you know, he himself, of course, was, was excommunicated by his religious uh, leaders. So human beings have goals, and we reward, and we punish, and and we plan, and we make things for our own utility, but God isn't that way. God is not some, oh, here's your goal. I'm going to judge you by how well or how badly you do, right? God doesn't sit there and say, well, your sales quotas are a thousand widgets this month, and if you sell 2,000, you get uh, double the money. If you sell 500, you get half the money. If you sell zero, you get fired. He said, no, God is not that way things only occur because of nature and its laws, matter and energy. And I quote from Spinoza, Nature has no end set before it. All things proceed by a certain eternal necessity of nature. So if a God who gives us rules and then punishes us for failing to adhere to those rules and rewards us for adhering to those rules, well then, you've got preachers who are going to say, I can protect you from this punishment, and I can ensure this reward. And Spinoza says, no, 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 no. God, or nature, is, it doesn't have an end. Saying that nature has an end is like saying a rock has a purpose. And to try and find purpose in nature is to fundamentally misunderstand it and, as he referred to it, turn it upside down. You put the end result before the true cause. Now, uh, this is not Spinoza, but I, I would imagine that one of his arguments would be, look, you take a man's opinion and you extrapolate it to all-powerful, all-knowing, divine perfection, then that's way too much power for any one man's mind to handle. It's going to short-circuit and corrupt the mind. right? So if you, if you have someone in your life who is all-knowing, infallible, perfectly moral, and has the power to uh, punish everyone or reward everyone, and you have to obey that person because you can't possibly say no to them? Well, that would be that would be a crazy person, right? That would be somebody uh, n- narcissistic delusions. It would be grandiosity, megalomaniacal, and that's impossible. But if you supercharge a man's mind with divine perfection, it short circuits his conscience and power corrupts. Again, I'm. this is not an argument he made, but I imagine it's something along those lines. So he says, people, I find both in themselves and outside themselves. People, sorry, people find both. So he says, people find both in themselves and outside themselves many means that are very helpful in seeking their own advantage, e.g., Eyes for seeing, teeth for chewing, plants and animals for food, the sun for light, the sea for supporting fish. Hence, they consider all natural things as means to their own advantage. And knowing that they had found these means, not provided them for themselves, they had reason to believe that there was someone else who had prepared those means for their use. For after they considered things as means, they could not believe that the things had made themselves but from the means they were accustomed to prepare for themselves. They had to infer that there was a ruler or a number of rulers of nature endowed with human freedom who had taken care of all things for them and made all things for their use. And since they had never heard anything about the temperament of these rulers, they had to judge it from their own. Hence they maintained that the gods direct all things for the use of men in order to bind men to them and be held by men in the highest honor. So it has happened that each of them has thought up from his own temperament different ways of worshipping God, so that God might love them above all the rest and direct the whole of nature according to the needs of their blind desire and insatiable greed. Thus, this prejudice was changed into superstition and struck deep roots in their mind. And so, we've talked about the dominoes, right? The dominoes, what causes what? This is what Spinoza wrote. If a stone has fallen from a room under someone's head and killed him, they will show in the following way that the stone fell in order to kill the man. For if it did not fall to that end, God willing it, how could so many circumstances have concurred by chance? For often many circumstances do concur at once. Perhaps you will answer that it happened because the wind was blowing hard or the man was walking that way. But they will persist. Why? Why? Was the wind blowing hard at that time? Why was the man walking that way at that time? If you answer, again, That the wind arose then because on the preceding day, While the weather was still calm, The sea began to toss, And that the man had been invited by a friend, They will press on, For there is no end to the questions which can be asked. But why was the sea tossing? Why was the man invited at just that time? And so they will not stop asking for the causes of causes Until you take refuge in the will of God, I.e., the sanctuary of ignorance. So, yeah, the dominoes flow all the way back until you come to the will of God, and he says there is no will of God because God is nature. There is no will of a rock, there is no will of a a cloud, and there is no will of God. God did not create nature. God is nature. So, is he a pantheist? Well, there's really two versions of pantheism. One is God is just everything, and there's nothing else. Like, there's no extra magic source. And the other is that God is everything and magic source, right? So, everything contains God like a sponge. Like, you, you dip a sponge into the water, and you set it out of the water, and there's water in the sponge, right? Take a dry sponge. There's almost no water in the sponge. You put it in the water. So, either God and nature are exactly the same thing, or God is nature and also the spirit of God. Now, Spinoza leans to... I mean, there's, he goes both ways, <laughs> to put it mildly. But he leans towards the first, that God is everything and there's no no magic. Now, I just wanted to give you an example of how challenging Spinoza can be, can be to read, right? So, he's got, in, in part one of his ethics, there are 15 propositions... I'm not going to unpack all of these, but I'm just going to give you a sense of, man, I I work so hard, (laughs) I work so hard to make this stuff comprehensible and useful and informative and not abstract and obtuse and what the hell is he saying and rewind three times and have to look at 12 footnotes and and know the original Latin and I'm really, really work hard. And this, I get straight from Socrates who never used the word epistemology or metaphysics. This came from Aristotle, but can I give you philosophy that's comprehensible and actionable? And I don't want to say explain it to me like I'm three years old, but, you know, when I was eight, when my daughter was 18 months old, I explained UPB uh, to she got it, could repeat it back. And so if I can can explain it to a two-year-old effectively, if you can't, then you've got no right inflicting moral standards on a two-year-old. So, all right. So here's Spinoza. Proposition one, a substance is prior in nature to its affectations. Proposition one, a substance is prior in nature to its affections. Proposition 2. Two substances having different attributes have nothing in common with one another. In other words, if two substances differ in nature, then they have nothing in common. Proposition 3. If things have nothing in common with one another, one of them cannot be the cause of the other. Proposition 4. Two or more distinct things are distinguished from one another either by a difference in the attributes, i.e., the natures or essences of the substances, or by a difference in their affections, i.e. their accidental properties. Proposition 5. In nature, there cannot be two or more substances of the same nature or attribute. Proposition 6. One substance cannot be produced by another substance. Proposition 7. It pertains to the nature of a substance to exist. Proposition 8. Every substance is necessarily infinite. Proposition 9. The more reality or being each thing has, the more attributes belong to it. Proposition 10. Each attribute of a substance must be conceived through itself. Proposition 11. God, or a substance consisting of infinite attributes, each of which expresses eternal and infinite essence, necessarily exists. The proof of this proposition consists simply in the classic ontological proof of God's existence. Spinoza writes that, quote, If you deny this, conceive, if you can, that God does not exist. Therefore, by axiom 7, if a thing can be conceived as not existing, its essence does not involve existence, his essence does not involve existence. By this, but this, by proposition 7, is absurd. Therefore, God necessarily exists. QED means, therefore, it is proven. Proposition 12, no attribute of a substance can be truly conceived from which it follows that the substance can be divided. Proposition 13, a substance which is absolutely infinite is indivisible. Sorry, Proposition 14: Except God, no substance can be or be conceived. Hey, does that clear up everything for you? You're you're set now with gods and morals and reality and existence. It it angers me. It angers me. And I'll should I do the rant now? I, I'll do the rant now. Do a little brief. Philosophers are the definers and purveyors of wisdom to the masses. It's their job. It's the job you take when you become a philosopher, and you proclaim yourself as a philosopher, and you use philosophical methods, reason and evidence, to separate truth from falsehood, good from evil, right from wrong. That's your job. Now, if there was a doctor who poisoned his patients, we would consider that just about the most evil thing because the doctor proclaims himself as a healer and he has instead become a murderer. He has preyed upon the vulnerable and those who have come to him only on the trust that he heals them and he has in fact killed them or harmed them or made them ill. The job of the philosopher is to defend the natural instincts of right and wrong for the masses. To extend and universalize them to encompass more than their immediate experience. The job of the physicist is not to contradict the experience that a man can open a door or catch a ball. The job of the physicist is to explain that and extend it so that we gain control over the universe as a whole. We can send a probe to Mars or a spaceship past Pluto. We can split the atom and we get air conditioning. So the purpose of the physicist is not to contradict the everyday empirical experience of human beings in catching balls, floating balloons, driving cars, building houses, constructing bridges that stay up. The job of the physicist is to accept those, explain them, and extend them to what people cannot directly experience, to extract the principles from the everyday to the universals that give us power and the modern world. The job of the moralist is to define and understand the local morals used between adults in the law, between parents and children, between children and children, to understand the everyday morals, to define them, to abstract them, and to universalize them so that human beings gain moral control over the world. But that is not what philosophers do. What philosophers do Is tell the average person, oh, you're wrong. Your senses don't work. Your reason doesn't work. You can't understand morals in any universal fashion. You're wrong. You're incorrect. You think you can catch a ball, but oh, that's just a delusion. You think you can build a house that stays up. You think you can print a book, but I'm going to live in a house that stays up and print a book to tell you that that's all false. It's a betrayal. Of the essential job of the philosopher, which is to identify local morals, extend them to universals, and present that great gift to mankind. That is the job. That is the job. The job of the doctor is not necessarily to just heal, or a medical researcher, is not just to heal one person by accident, but to discover the principles of healing and universalize them to save countless lives across the world smallpox vaccine was developed because people noticed that the milkmaids who milked cows did not seem to get smallpox as much. Now, we didn't just say, well, that's good for the milkmaids. No, they extracted a principle and created a vaccine that has saved countless lives. Take an individual attribute, an individual experience, get the principle, universalize it, save lives. That's the case with morals. All human beings who are sane recognize that murder is immoral. Theft is immoral. Rape is immoral. Assault is immoral. Okay, that's the local, that's what we put on our kids. Hopefully not the rape one, but kids don't rape, but don't hit, don't steal. Don't hit, don't grab, don't take. That's his toy. Don't push, don't hit. Don't assault, don't steal. Okay, those are the local ethics that we inflict on two-year-olds. What's the job of the philosopher? The job of the philosopher is to identify that, extract the principles and universalize them so they're not helpless in the face of moral sophistry that enslaves us. That's the job. And they just won't do it. This is what drives me crazy about these philosophers. This is why it is a very challenging thing for me to go through this history of philosophy because the history of philosophy is the history of betrayal of the common man for the sake of enslaving him to the rulers. It is saying to the parents, yes, you must stop your children from hitting each other and the best way to do that is to hit your children. Yes, we must prevent our property from being stolen and the best way we do that is to allow a king... To tax us into oblivion. And all of this nonsense about subject and essence and infinity and nomism and monism and ontology, pantheism, it's all just clouded bullshit squid ink designed to sting our eyes and blind us to the enslavement of those the philosophers serve. <sighs> And the reaction, I mean, of course, the reaction of the Jewish leaders. Well, I mean, they were in a tenuous position in Holland, in Amsterdam, the Jewish leaders, because they're facing a lot of persecution and hostility from the Christians. And if this guy goes to says, oh, well, there's no anthropomorphic God, there's no soul, there's no life after death, well, you you, you can't be a Christian and reject a God that has anthropomorphic characteristics. You can't be a Christian and reject life after death because that's why Jesus sacrificed himself, was to give you the capacity to gain to heaven after the fall of Adam. So if Spinoza had been allowed to preach this stuff, to teach this stuff, that would have aroused a fair amount of host- a lot of hostility, I would imagine, from the Christians towards the Jewish community as a whole. say, ah, well, you know, he faced a lot of danger in his life. I get that, okay, I've said this before, so what? Then do it after you're dead. Right? He didn't publish a whole bunch of stuff till after he was dead anyway, or he didn't publish any of this stuff other people did. (sighs) Why won't the philosophers serve the people, validate the common sense ethics of the people, and extend them to true universals to protect people from the shadowy control of the sophists, and the rulers they serve—that's your job. It's like literally hiring a guard to protect your property, who sets fire to everything you own, and nobody—nobody nobody seems to notice this. I don't think I'm crazy, but nobody seems to notice this. It's horrible. I'm—I'm I'm enraged at this betrayal. Of the people. <sighs> okay, so. Part one of the ethics of Spinoza's. His fairly technical language comes right out of Descartes. But what this propositions 1 through 15, what does it mean to say? God is substance. And everything else is in God. What does that mean? Does that mean that everything that we can see are all properties of God, can be predicated of God, right? So is God the table and the properties is the redness of the table? So anyway, Spinoza writes, from the necessity of the divine nature, there must follow infinitely many things in infinitely many modes, everything that can fall under an infinite intellect. So if God is nature... And nature has properties and principles that are inviolate. Does if there's no free will, which he gets to, right? There's no free will in the universe. This is the curse of the mechanistic view of the universe. That you become matter and energy. Matter and energy doesn't have free will. There's no ghost in the machine. Therefore, nobody has free will. There's no moral responsibility. And you just try to make utilitarian judgments on effect. Like giving up your freedom in return for the protection of the state. And blah, 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 right? But if nature has no capacity or room for free will and god is nature then god has no free will oh well that's quite a statement isn't it i am going to remove free will from god well that's uh it's quite a claim <laughs> sorry god no free will for you Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that's that's really... I mean, it's, look, it's one thing to say there's no God. It's another thing to say, well, there is God, but he's got no free will. Oof. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that seem a little crazy to you? T- to constrain God <laughs> himself? Oh, wow. That is something else, right? <sighs> I mean, look, UPB, right? I mean, I think the formulation is very clear and the examples are very clear. But UPB, right, well, what do people say? The golden rule, right? Or what do we say to kids, right? Some, some, you know, Bob grabs Sally's toy away Sally starts to cry and the parent says, well, how would you like it if Sally grabbed your toy? How would you like it if someone did that to you? Bob steals something from Sally. Sally finds out is really upset parent goes to Bob and says, well, come on, how would you like it if Sally stole something from you? Or they punish Bob by saying, well, I'm taking away your phone or your tablet or your whatever, right? So I'm going to take something from you so you understand, right? How would you like it if someone did it to you? How would you like it if everyone did it? Well, that's a subjective thing. This is why I oppose the categorical imperative from Kant and the golden rule and so on. So UPB is not, well, how would you like it if that happened to you? Or how would you like it if everyone did it? Oh, you stole something? How would you like it if everyone stole things? Well, of course, you know everyone's not going to steal things. So you don't care. It's just a pure theoretical. So UPB doesn't say, well, how would you like it if this was done to you? Or how would you like it if everyone did it? UPB says, is it possible for everyone to do it? Is it possible for everyone to be a thief? No. No. Thief is the unwanted transfer of property, and if everybody wants to steal and be stolen from, there's no such category as thief. It is impossible for everyone to be a murderer, for everyone to be a rapist, for everyone to be a thief, for everyone to assault. It is impossible. It's a logical contradiction. So the belief in free will, yes, Spinoza is just, I mean, is nothing but scorn. Now this, again, psychologically interesting but unprovable, well, he was so harshly treated by his community, the only way he was able to forgive them was to view them as machines, like we wouldn't get angry at a rock for falling on us uh, and, uh, and so on, right? We, we would get angry if a man pushed a rock that fell on us, but we wouldn't get angry at a rock that just fell on its own. So I think that he tried to deal with his rejection by his community by saying that, well, they're just, they're just machines. The people who cursed me are just machines. So he, if he treats free will as a delusion that we don't know the true cause of our own actions, so we ascribe it to this mysticism called free will. So he wrote, men believe themselves to be free because they are conscious of their own actions and are ignorant of the causes by which they are determined. So if we could figure out all the causes of our actions, we would realize that we don't have free will. It's just that as we try and trace things back, we get to a fog and we call that fog free will but it's not an answer, according to Spinoza. It's taking refuge in ignorance and claiming a knowledge you don't have. Why did I do this? Free will! But you don't know. If you knew, he says, you would not say free will. So, metaphysics is pantheistic mysticism. God is nature. Nature is nature plus God. Right? So, the two circles are perfectly overlapping, except... The god circle is bigger than the nature circle, but the god circle is not bigger than the nature circle. The god is both exactly the same as the nature circle and also outside it but not outside it. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just it's bad. It's bad. <sighs> and and I don't like thinkers who don't notice that that's a contradiction. Because what else, right? It's the principle in, in law, right? There's a principle. If you're on the stand and you are found to be lying about something, well, lying in one thing is lying in all things. You can't trust anything anyone says if they lie under oath about one thing. So from this quasi-mystical anti Occam's Razor, right? Occam's Razor, the simplest explanation is probably the true one, right? So if God is nature, well, you already have nature. You already have evidence for nature. You already have proof of nature. Nature is self-evident to your senses, every one of them. Including the hidden ones like hunger and balance. You don't put food in your mouth, you get hungry. Close your eyes and spin, you get dizzy. So, if you can already directly experience nature, but you can't directly experience God, and you say nature is God, what does God add? What does God add? And you say, ah, well, you know, but he couldn't be an atheist and so on. It's like, yes, he could be. He could just wait till after he was dead. And maybe his papers would have been burned, and maybe they would have been stored, and maybe they would have been published but banned, as they were, anyway. But then shut up about stuff. If you can't tell the truth about stuff, shut up about it. Don't mislead people. That's all. Don't claim a knowledge you don't have. That's sophistry 101, right? Just don't mislead people. If you say, well, you know, I can't be an out-and-out atheist, because, okay, then, then stop talking about metaphysics and epistemology. Just shut up about it. If you can't tell the truth, don't mislead people. It's like saying, well, I can't get the price that I want for this good, so I'm just going to steal the money. If you can't get the price you want, don't sell it. Don't break virtue. Don't break honesty. Don't break integrity because you can't or won't tell the truth. Okay, so epistemology— Sense perception is inadequate. Of course, it is, because he's got a concept that can't be seen by the senses that he says is essential. So, if you've got a concept that can't be seen by the senses but is essential for your philosophy, you have to denigrate the senses. Of course, can the senses see God? No, well, they can see matter, but they can't see God. So, if God exists for you, but the God can't, uh, but, but uh, the, the God can't be perceived by the senses, then clearly the senses are wrong and bad and inadequate. Right? So. How does he say the senses are inadequate? And listen, I, I get it. I Look, my life of the mind is not just philosophical, but also creative, right? I went 500 years in the future and described a wonderful world that doesn't exist. I get. If you're very smart, you're very creative, the life of the mind is really vivid, really powerful. You can, I mean, I can, I can sit in a chair for an hour with my eyes closed just thinking of the most wonderful things. Or terrible things, or whatever it is, is working, working on, Right. The life of the mind can really seem to eclipse the evidence of the senses. Because your daydreams, your imagination, the operations in your mind vastly dwarf the operations of your senses. Because you can conceive and perceive of things that are not in the senses. I mean, I write, I've only written one contemporary novel. Everything else is historical or future, past or future. I've written many historical novels. I've written one contemporary novel, which is now kind of historical, and I've written one science fiction. So most of the things that I write are not in the evidence of my senses. They're in my mind's eye. Entire people I've never met, entire inner thoughts of people I don't have any access to, entire scenes from history that I can't perceive directly. So I get it. The life of the mind seems to eclipse the evidence of the senses. The senses are a small circle, the life of the mind is a big circle. Now, if the life of the mind includes spirituality, divinity, superstition, magic, because at least I know that the things that are in my mind don't exist in the world. Right? The character Mary O'Donnell from Just Poor is not a person in the world. I have to believe she's a person in the world, but she's not in the world, which is why people who are creative are so susceptible to propaganda and why they amplify propaganda so much. So I get it, the life of the mind is bigger than the life of the senses, the evidence of the senses. Now, for me, the life of the mind is a big circle. The evidence of the senses is an even bigger circle. This seems counterintuitive, but the life of the mind comes entirely from the evidence of the senses. Why do I have language? Why do I know the name Mary is valid? Why did, I did a lot of studying of a history of the 20th century for almost. I did a lot of studying of the history of the 19th century for my novel Revolutions. I did a lot of his studying of the history of the 18th century in England for just poor. So these novels don't exist in the real world, but they only exist because of language and a process and a computer and typing and reading and research and all of the evidence of the senses that I've abstracted to create something new. So although it feels like, well, these these, these are bigger than the senses. No, no, no. The life of the mind is always derived from the evidence of the senses. If you read Helen Keller, who was born blind, deaf, and dumb until the teacher taught her language. And she says, well, before I knew language, before I could write and communicate, everything was just a, a chaos of the moment. There was nothing. I didn't have a personality. I didn't have any thoughts. I didn't have any, anything. Nothing was going on really in my mind. The life of the mind, however powerful and abstract and wonderful it is, however universal it may be, always arises from the evidence of the senses. How do we get laws of physics? We get laws of physics from our experience in the world, which is why, no matter how abstract your theory of physics, it must be replicatable in some kind of experiment. Fusion in a bottle turns out to be false, can't be replicated. The life of the mind arises from the evidence of the senses and it's always contained, and subject to the evidence of the senses. The evidence of the senses is the big circle, the life of the mind is the smaller circle, even though, and this is the paradox, I get it, even though the life of the mind extends beyond the senses. We know what the dark side of the moon is composed of before we see the dark side of the moon. Now, if for whatever reason we see the dark side of the moon, it's composed of gold, then we were wrong. But we can make... We can have knowledge of things we have not perceived, but only because of the consistency of what we have perceived. So he has mysticism, which is essential to his view of the universe. God is like water in the sponge, and because the senses can't see God, he has to denigrate the senses. So he says, okay, well, what's wrong with the senses? Well... It's the mind's representation of the state of your own body rather than some direct connection to external bodies. Sense perception is indirect. In other words, we're looking through one of those funhouse mirrors, right? You ever been on one of those funhouse mirrors that give you really tall legs or, or, or a really big head or something like that, right? So the senses don't give you direct perception of things. It goes through a filter. It goes through distortion. Ten percent of males uh, male, males are, are colorblind so you know you you can't trust the senses because it's always going through some sort of subjective uh, distortion right the the perception we have of external bodies is always distorted by the lens of your own your own body so there's a, a bunch of distinctions about knowledge right so inadequate perception there there are two kinds knowledge from random experience, experientia vaga. This is knowledge, quote, from singular things which have been represented to us through the senses in a way which is mutilated, confused, and without order for the intellect. The second consists of knowledge from signs, what he refers to as ex signis, and I quote, for example, from the fact that having heard or read certain words, we recollect things and form certain ideas of them, like those through which we imagine the things. So, these forms of knowledge lack a rational order so if you're a roman and you hear the word pomum uh, you you think of an apple right not because there's any rational empirical logical scientific connection between the word pomum and apple because i have to say the word apple because you probably don't speak latin neither do i <laughs> but it's a trained association between the word apple and the apple the thing right So the second kind of knowledge is reason, reason, or what he calls ratio. So we've gone from an inadequate knowledge, which is the chaos of our senses, to an adequate perception of things. So he, we gain this knowledge, quote, from the fact that we have common notions and adequate ideas of the properties of things. So this is more rational. Ah, but there's a third type. Oh, there's always a third type. Intuitive Knowledge. Scientia intuitiva. And this, quote, proceeds from an adequate idea of the formal essence of certain attributes of God to the adequate knowledge of the formal essence of things. So, this is really the Platonic realm of forms. You have to allow knowledge in opposition to the senses if there's an essential part of your metaphysics that can't be perceived by the senses. The senses are limited, we can't see infrared. Infrared exists. So, yes, we can say the senses are limited. If infrared equals God and we can't perceive God, the senses must be limited relative to God. If we say that which exists is what we can perceive, but we can't perceive God who exists, then we have to say the senses are corrupted. Or they're fine for the material world, and that's how we know existence for the material world, but we have to have a different definition of existence for the immaterial world, because immaterial means does not exist. And so... basically saying something which is immaterial exists, and our definition of existence is material, we are saying that which is immaterial is material. But that's a complete contradiction, so we have to create another realm, another universe. The realm of the forms, uh, heaven outside the universe. The new realm, uh, nirvana, whatever. Because if we're saying that which does not exist, exists, then we have to say, well, obviously it doesn't exist here, because We can't perceive it in any way, which is the very definition of non-existence. But in another realm, it totally exists. And that realm, by the way, is superior to our realm. So he says, we conceive things as actual in two ways. Either insofar as we conceive them to exist in relation to a certain time and place, or insofar as we conceive them to be contained in God and to follow from the necessity of the divine nature. But the things we conceive in this second way as true or real we conceive under a species of eternity. And to that extent, they involve the eternal and infinite essence of God. The more this knowledge that things are necessary is concerned with singular things, which we imagine more distinctly and vividly, the greater is this power of the mind over the affects, as experience itself also testifies. For we see that sadness over some good which has perished is lessened as soon as the man who has lost it realizes that this good could not in any way have been kept. Similarly, we see that because we regard infancy as the natural and necessary thing, no one pities infants because of their inability to speak, to walk, or to reason, or because they live so many years, as it were, unconscious of themselves. Ah, you see, this is what we call proof in the land of bullshit. Ah, but the things we conceive in this second way as true or real, we conceive under a species of eternity. (laughs) And to that extent, they involve the eternal, es- eternal and infinite essence of God, God, God. Now, this, you know, using stretchy, bendy, gymnastic language is not a proof. It's not an argument to say, no, no, no. It's a species of eternity. That's right. Two and two make five. No, it doesn't. No, 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 no. Two and two make five under a species of eternity. <laughs> it involves the eternal and infinite essence. Of two and two, that makes five. Cause he says, you know, boy, things things that you, you you can't argue for but you think are true. Well, it's just superstition. But let me tell you all these things I'm gonna argue for that aren't true. Isn't that superstition? Blank out. <sighs> so yeah, the census they present things only as they look to you in a particular moment in time. And uh, But you've got to get these eternal, universal, abstract essences of things. Again, it's straight up Platonism. No relation to time. And I quote, says Spinoza, I quote, It is of the nature of reason to regard things as necessary and not as contingent, and reason perceives this necessity of things truly, i.e. as it is in itself. But this necessity of things is the very necessity of God's eternal nature. Therefore, it is of the reason. Therefore, it is of the nature of reason to regard things under this species of eternity. Blah, blah, blah. Right. So this is the third kind of knowledge. This is kind of I- intuition, a grasping of the forms that can't be communicated. That's why you've got to use this nonsense, fog language, the species of eternity. So the third kind of knowledge, this intuition, takes what is known by reason, and abstracts it in a single. Act of the mind. Magic. <laughs> I'd like to see this step. No. So, now Spinoza says, look, we can know all of nature. Every aspect, every innermost secret, every aspect and and, and property of matter we're going to get to. Now, Descartes never thought we could get all of that. But because Spinoza winds... God and our capacity to divine or perceive God into the nature of the universe, we can divine the nature of the universe because we can divine God. So Spinoza says, we can know God perfectly and adequately in an eternal essence. We can know God. And I quote, "...the knowledge of God's eternal and infinite essence that each idea involves is adequate and perfect. The human mind has an adequate knowledge of God's eternal and infinite essence." (laughs) Woo. <laughs> do you think of any other philosopher in the entire history of philosophy who's saying that, saying that man can perfectly know the mind of God? Oh, and if God, by the way, has no, no free will. <sighs> so you wind God into nature. You say, well, man can perfectly understand nature, and therefore man can perfectly understand God. Oh, so we understand nature through the evidence of the senses. Does so that mean we can understand God through the evidence? No! <laughs> Can't do that. That would be crazy. Ah. So, okay, so let's get to the ethics, which is basic bitch, stoicism. Not because stoicism is basic bitch, but just because he, he's just, he ends up with this knee-jerk stoicism for no reason at all that comes out of his metaphysics, his epistemology, nothing. So Descartes said, look, if, if we're going to have free will, the soul has got to be exempt from the laws of nature. Because laws of nature is just cause and effect, just dominoes falling. So Descartes says, we've got to have a soul that's exempt from the laws of nature. Now Spinoza, in Part 3 and 4 of Ethics, and he says this in his preface to Part 3, he says, no, 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 we've got we to human beings and, and free will and volition and moral responsibility, we've got to put them to their proper place in nature. There's nothing outside of nature, not even the human mind. So nature is universal. It's always the same everywhere you go. Past, present, future, all over the universe. And the laws of nature are universal. And he says, regarding ethics, he says, what we should strive for is to learn how to moderate and restrain the passions and become active, autonomous beings. If we can achieve this, then we will be, quote, free, To the extent that whatever happens to us will result not from our relations with things outside us, but from our own nature, as that follows from and is ultimately and necessarily determined by the attributes of God, of which our minds and bodies are modes, we will consequently be truly liberated from the troublesome emotional ups and downs of this life. We need to free ourselves from a reliance on the senses of the imagination since a life guided by the senses and the imagination is a life of being affected and led by the objects around us and rely as much as we can on our rational faculties. So we can't control things in the world. We can control our response to things in the world. We've got to minimize our attachment to things in the world so we can live a more trouble-free existence. And we can't remove ourselves from the dominoes, the causal series of things that link us to everything in the universe, but we can counteract our passions, we can control them, and we can, like, we'll never get rid of the headache, but we can take some aspirin and get some relief from the discomfort and pain of the headache. And this is stoicism, this is Cicero, this is Seneca, and this is a quote from Spinoza. He says, we do not have an absolute power to adapt things outside us to our use. Nevertheless, we shall bear calmly those things that happen to us contrary to what the principle of our advantage demands if we are conscious that we have done our duty, that the power we have could not have extended itself to the point where we could have avoided those things, and that we are a part of the whole of nature whose order we follow. If we understand this clearly and distinctly, that part of us which is defined by understanding i.e. the better part of us, will be entirely satisfied with this and will strive to persevere in that satisfaction. For insofar as we understand, we can want nothing except what is necessary, nor absolutely be satisfied with anything except what is true. Again, how this fits into no free will, no moral goals, no ends. I mean, if God is not allowed to have moral goals... How are human beings allowed to have moral goals? It makes no sense. So he says, look, we 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 love these things in the world. We love our goals. We love our um, houses. We love... But but these are all going to come and go. And, and they're, you know, your wife could die. Uh, you love your wife. You should die. So you, your, your ship could sink and you lose all your money. Uh, uh, any number of things, right? So we have to give up our love and attachment to things in the world and love that which is eternal and universal. We've got to love an eternal, immutable virtue that we can attach to that won't change, which is God. So, the mind's abstract love of God is the same, is equal to our understanding of the universe. Our, quote, salvation, although As a materialist, he doesn't believe in life after death. He says, look, the more you love God, the more you'll be free from upset over things in the world, because God is eternal and perfect, and so when you love God, he won't pass away, he won't get sick, he won't die, he won't be stolen, he won't be burned (laughs) to the ground, he, he won't age and die like you. You hook yourself into that which is eternal and universal, and that is where your happiness and your morality will flourish. And also, when you love that which is eternal and perfect and you detach yourself from the hurly-burly, the ups and downs, the roller coaster of everyday life, you're free from being buffeted and pushed around and bullied by your passions. And again, this is right back to, uh, to Buddhism. If you're free, then it doesn't matter to you whether you win the lottery or lose your leg. And so even though he says look all creatures aim for their own flourishing and success you will reject egoism because egoism is about you and your life and you will hook into the eternal and you'll be moral you'll be you'll be altruistic you will care for the well-being of others you'll have rational benevolence and you will try to free them from the fishhooks of passion that are constantly jerking everyone out you will take the puppet master of the passions and cut those strings, and they won't fall limp, they'll fly upwards to the bosom of God. Oh, and you won't fear death, by the way. You're not going to be punished, there are no rewards, so you're not going to have anything to fear about death. So he wrote, Insofar as men are torn by effects that are passions, they can be contrary to one another. But insofar as men live according to the guidance of reason, they must do only those things that are good for human nature, and hence for each man i.e. those things that agree with the nature of each man. Hence, insofar as men live according to the guidance of reason, they must always agree among themselves. Right. Right. I mean, this is similar to Ayn Rand's contention through objectivism that there's no conflict of interest between rational men. But the idea that reason means that we can erase all disputes or that it's basically saying that all human conflicts arise out of ignorance, and therefore, if we teach people reason, if we teach people virtue and knowledge, there will be no evil people. And again, this is just because they don't understand childhood development, they don't understand the crippling of empathy that occurs with early significant child abuse, and they don't understand the physical nature of certain aspects of sociopathy or psychopathy, and right, they, they just... They just imagine that everyone's the same, and uh, evil is just a kind of ignorance. You teach people better, and they'll be better, and he doesn't agree with the soul, but the idea that you can always reach past the physical brain and hook into the eternal and perfect, or at least the ideal soul, well, there is no ghost in the machine. There is no moral person inside an immoral person. If you smoke and you destroy your lungs, there's no platonic ideal perfect lungs in there that you can appeal to. And if you wreck your brain through, well, if your brain is wrecked and then you fail to repair it, or maybe it's beyond repair through early childhood trauma, abuse, and so on, if your brain is broken and you either can't or won't fix it, it's not a lack of knowledge, but either chosen or unchosen, unrecoverable trauma. And so because you can't, because he doesn't deal with childhood, he doesn't approach childhood, he doesn't, mm, he wants to be an ethicist, but he doesn't talk about childhood. This, again, this is the most frustrating and raging thing about all of these guys, because they all were children. They all were children. They were all traumatized and abused as children. And not one of these moral philosophers ever talks about child. Well, we'll get to that. I mean, we do have, we do have people coming up who are going to, Rousseau and, and other. they're going to start to talk about childhood. But by God, wouldn't it have been great if he just said, well, what do you need to say? Well, you know, we uh, we prevent adults from hitting each other. Why do we allow adults to hit children? Boom, right there, you could have saved millions of lives, hundreds of millions of lives. Right there, one sentence. Why is it that we allow people to assault children when we don't allow people to assault people? We're going to take these morals and make them universal. No, 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 they always want to go it around the belly button of God rather than just... Deal with what actually happened to them as children. Oh, it's so annoying. What is the big moral issue? In the world, throughout history, all time? The abuse of children. These people, these men, as children were abused. <sighs> but now it's all rational, reciprocal, potential altruism in the bosom of God through love of the divine. And it's like, okay, can we just talk about can we talk about child abuse? Can we talk about the trauma of what actually happened to you, or is you just going to run into eternity and infinity? The divine, the eternal, and the infinite is almost always a scar tissue of the avoidance of childhood trauma. You want to jump out of your body. Why do you want to jump out of your body? Why do you want to jump into the eternal, the universal, the infinite? Why do you want to be the opposite of your body? Because your body was used to punish you. That's what child abuse is. Child abuse is using your body to punish you. Your body becomes your enemy. Your body becomes the demon through which hell was inflicted upon you. You are not cast into hell. After your death, your body was turned into a hell to torture you when you were a child. The fundamental facts. Why do you want to jump out of your body into eternity and universality and abstractions and the forms and the new amenal realm and utopia and Everything that is not the body. Why do you want to flee the body? Because the body is your enemy. Or the body was used to harm you. Your senses were used in pain. Your trauma, emotional trauma, was used in anxiety, fear, depression, suppressed rage. You were beaten. You were hit. You were raped. You were assaulted. You were starved. Your body was turned into hell. And you wish to jump out of the body into the eternal and the divine and to no longer have attachment to the things of this world. Because the things of this world, you see, according to Simonoza, the things of this world, the material things, the things that come and go, the things that have ups and downs, your passions, your emotions, are your enemy. Why is your body your enemy? Why are your passions Your enemy. Why are your senses the enemy? Because your senses were used to torture you. Your sense of touch was used in pain. The sight of somebody grabbing a belt to beat you. The sound of somebody screaming at you. The smell of your own blood when you are beaten. The taste of it. Your senses are the eternal flagellators of your fragile flesh. The senses were double agents used to serve an immoral invasion and occupation of your nervous system. Why do you hate the senses? Because the senses were your punishment. Why do you wish to flee the body? Because the body was your punishment. Why do you wish to flee into the anti-human and the inhuman, the abstract, the universal, the perfect, the eternal? Because everything that is temporal, everything that is fleshly, everything that is material, was your torturer. You flee your flesh. Like a man flees a burning, collapsing building. You flee your flesh like a man tunnels to escape a torture chamber. You squirt out into the material because the fist closing around your flesh was crushing your life. Now, politics. Again, basic bitch, state of nature. Oh, in the state of nature, everything's terrible. So we have to get together in a In politics, we have to get together under a ruler so the ruler can protect us from the evils of the state of nature, blah, 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 blah. He says, no, 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 no. obeying a sovereign, obeying a ruler, obeying a king, that doesn't infringe upon our freedoms. Because when the ruler, when the king commands us to do something, well, we've already agreed to obey him. You know, if, if I sign a contract to buy a car and then the person comes and asks me for money for that car, I'm not enslaved by paying him the money for the car because I voluntarily entered into that contract. So if you have freely entered into a contract, you can't claim that it's slavery to follow that contract. And since we have freely entered into a social contract, love it or leave it, if you stay, you agree, all of the Socratic stuff and the Hobbesian stuff that we've talked about before, if you're there, you agree. And... Again, they, you know, his, his, um, uh, his uh, ancestors left uh, Portugal, I think it was, and fled to Holland. So this was their preferred country. So he is not such a big fan of monarchy. He prefers a democracy because in a democracy, people are going to obey the laws that arise from the general will of the general population. And he says in a democracy, it's least subject to various abuses and whims of power. Monarchy, he was not a fan of. He says it's the least stable and it's the one that's most likely going to degenerate into tyranny. And, you know, the Hoppian argument that a monarchy can be preferable to democracy because a monarchy has to leave his kingdom to his sons or his daughters and therefore he has an interest in preserving at least the economic Health. They're not going to go into massive national debts because their kids are going to inherit those debts, uh, Those debts. so blah, blah, blah. So, so Spinoza wrote, justice and charity thereby acquire the force of civil law backed by the power of the sovereign. Spinoza was not a proponent of the separation of church and state, but he was a big fan of free speech. Because he says, look, you can't control people's thoughts anyway. You can't control what they say in uh, private, for sure. I mean... Everyone is a natural master of his or her own thoughts. And so if the government forces people to speak only in certain ways, it just won't particularly work. Now, he says there's some limit to limits to what you can say. Uh, if If you encourage people or try to convince people to nullify the social contract, nope, can't do that. But if you're a good government, then you will allow for a certain amount of of free speech and it could be inconvenient and so on but if you try to regulate everything that people say by law you're more likely to provoke rebellion than change people's minds and he wrote this freedom, the freedom of free speech this freedom is of the first importance in fostering the sciences and the arts for only those whose judgment is free and unbiased can attain success in these fields so this, we'll get to John Stuart Mill in a while, but this is back to John, mill, John Stuart Mill's defense of liberty, it's almost 200 years later, which was a utilitarian, that it's for the best, for the state, for society, and so on, as opposed to it's a moral principle. Now, the last thing that I'll sort of mention here is, he, he said that a person who achieves this intellectual love of God, and I quote, never ceases to be. He also writes, the human mind cannot be absolutely destroyed with the body, but something of it remains, which is eternal. So there's no life after death, but you live after death. You are mortal, but eternal. There's nothing of you that outlasts death, but your mind outlasts death. Now, (laughs) if he says the mind of the body the same thing, the mind and the brain are the same thing. The brain dies, but the mind survives, then the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Right? The poem survives the poet. Therefore, the poem is one of the ways you know that the poem and the poet are not the same thing. The poet does not survive the death of the poet, but the poem does. It's not the same thing. So in, in the realm of, of thought, it's really annoying to me. This is a, I'm not saying it's a con, right? But this is the general pattern that happens. Oh, this guy is so super genius, brilliant. Oh, my God he's just like a face furnace of sandblasting genius and brilliance and he knows 12 languages and he can levitate so you establish someone as super genius super brilliant and then what happens is you say well you know oh, he says this at this point but then he says something different later on but because he's so super brilliant i mean the fault lies with us <laughs> So here's here's a quote from, from a review. At first sight, this appears to be in violation of Spinoza's anti-dualist contention that mind and body are one and the same thing, conceived under two different attributes. On the basis of this contention, one would expect him to reject the survival of the mind in any fashion. That he asserts it instead has understandably been a source of great controversy among his commentators. <laughs> Boy, I'm not. I'm glad that people don't extend that privilege to me. You know, if I say... Uh, reason and evidence is the highest form of knowledge. And then I say, but mysticism is the highest form of knowledge. People wouldn't say, well, you know, gosh, it's really up to us to resolve these contradictions because he's such a genius that he's got to be right about everything. So it's, it's just, well, if you don't have the Bible, you have the text of some super genius philosopher. And if you fail to understand it, it's because of your fault. If he contradicts himself, it only appears to be a contradiction because you don't understand him deeply enough. No, that's just a contradiction. Sorry. Screwed up. Nope. Wrong. Can't say the mind of the body is the same thing. The body dies, but the mind survives. Can't do it. It's wrong. Now, people make mistakes. People make mistakes. I get that. People contradict themselves. You know, there may be a cottage industry in 200 years of... People reviewing my stories, which I've told a bunch of times, right? And people saying, well, on this version of the story, he said this. And on this version of the story, he said that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, My memory is not a photograph. <laughs> so I get it. My memory is is part, part creativity and part remembrance, right? But not in terms of foundational principles, right? I don't say the non-aggression principle is great, but initiating force is also wonderful. The highest morality is honesty and dishonesty. <laughs> right? So... This industry where, well, he's just a genius, and so if he contradicts himself, well, that's a source of great controversy. No, he's just contradicting. Like, ugh, this idea that there's the universe is God, and therefore, if you're just making it a tautology, God and the universe are the same thing. You're just, so you're using a mystically charged word to describe something that is purely material. Science and superstition are the same thing. (laughs) It's like, well, why are you you using the word that means the opposite of science and saying they're the same thing? Up and down are the same thing. Is there a difference between up and down? Is there a difference? That's an old Howard Jones song. It's really kind of annoying. Yeah, these things are opposites. You can't go north and south at the same time. You can't use the word God to describe material processes because the word God means immaterial non-processes. You can't say I've defined the universe as material and the universe and anti-materialism. The universe is empirical, no mind. And God is non-empirical, all mind. So I'm going to use these two complete diametrical opposites and say they're the same. They're, they're, they're united and they're intertwined together. The tree and the opposite of the tree are the same thing. Blue and the opposite of blue are both blue. Well, that's just the, uh, It's a crazy person. It's a cra- I don't care if he ground lenses. I don't care if he was a, an emotional Zen Buddha floating above the volcanoes of passions with perfect equanimity. That's crazy stuff. It's a sophistic lie to say God is the universe. Because God means that which is not the universe. A poet is that which is not the poem. Po- poet produces the poem, but the poet is that which is not the poem. A poem and a poet are the same thing except it's even worse than that, because at least we can empirically verify the poet and the poem. Heat, and the opposite of heat, are heat. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or saying that if you gather enough things together, you get opposite properties, right? That's collectivism, right? No, nobody signed a contract. Nobody signed a contract. Would you say that slaves born into slavery have signed a contract to be slaves? No, of course not. Nobody would make that argument. I mean, they may have in the past, but they don't make it now because we've learned better. A contract is something you voluntarily enter into. Saying a contract can be imposed on you by force when individuals can't impose contracts on each other by force, but the ruler can impose contracts on the subject by force. Why? Why, if, if collective will is moral, how is that the case? How is it that an individual will can be moral and immoral, but a collective will is always moral? There's an old saying in business. It's a joke, right? Designed to show the foolishness of some kind of business thinking. And it says, well, it's true that we lose a dollar on every widget we sell, but we'll make up for it with volume. <laughs> right, so you could say, well, it's true that we only make a nickel for every widget we sell, but we'll make up for it with volume. Oh, It's true that we lose... So. An individual loss does not become a profit in aggregate. If you lose a nickel or a dollar on every widget you sell, selling more widgets does not magically turn that into a profit. If you lose a dollar on every widget you sell, and you sell a, midget, a million widgets, you just lost a million dollars. Say, no, no, but if we, if we sell 10 million widgets, we'll make plus 10 million dollars. No, you just lost 10 million dollars then. Aggregations don't contradict the properties of the individual. If an individual will can be immoral, an aggregation of individual wills does not magically become moral. That literally is might makes right. Okay, then just say that. We'll say, well, look, you're outnumbered, so they can beat the crap out of you, so you've got to go along with what they say. Okay, that's fine, but be honest. Be honest. If you're surrounded by ten guys who want your wallet... Don't say, well, you know, everybody was kind of implicitly voting. They all wanted my wallet, so clearly it was moral for them to take my wallet, so I gave them my wallet, because I want to obey what's moral. You say, no, there were ten guys. I can't take on ten guys. They outnumbered, they outgunned, they encircled. I gave them my wallet. Why? Because they would do me harm if I didn't. Okay, then, just say that. I went along with them because there were more of them, and they were willing to use violence. (laughs) Okay, then, just say that. But do just say it's a moral social contract nonsense, right? Just accurately, without sentimentality, without nonsense, without lies, without sophistry, without imagination. But, but he can make up all of these eminent properties. He can make up all of these psychic reversals and superstitions because he's wound the opposite of the universe into the nature of the universe. So why can't he wind the opposite of morality into the nature of politics? The opposite of accuracy in the nature of sense perception. The moment somebody in their metaphysics has wound the opposite into what is, everything else, everything that follows, will be corrupted by that. If somebody says, truth is the opposite of truth, what conceptual consistency are you expecting from them after that? God is the universe. The universe is not mind which can be perceived, God is all mind which cannot be perceived. The universe and the opposite of the universe are the same thing. Truth and the opposite of truth is truth. Okay, well, why would you listen to anyone after that? I have no idea. I have no idea. Why would anyone listen to anything after Well, of course, I know, I know, I know. I'm being a little precious here. Because of childhood trauma, I get it. Because of childhood trauma. Because your parents inflicted a rule upon you that they did not follow themselves. Don't hit other children. I'm going to hit you to enforce that. Don't take other people's property. I'm going to confiscate things to enforce you. Don't starve your pets. I'm going to starve you if you disagree with me because all of those contradictions. Virtue is the opposite of virtue. Your parents are more powerful, but they claim to be virtuous, so virtue and power are the same thing. The democratic majority has power, so you'll transform it into virtue in the same way that your parents had power, and you transformed it into virtue to get along with them. And It's also depressingly familiar and also utterly lacking. In any shred of self knowledge. I'll keep going. Please help me out. Freedomain.com slash donate just for the trauma of this <laughs> damn series.